Last week, we learned of a man named George Lyle. He was the first black Baptist in America, the first black Baptist pastor, the founder of the first black Baptist church, and also the first American missionary. One of the people who came to faith in Christ under George Lyle's ministry among slave populations was a man named Andrew Bryan. Andrew Bryan was born in slavery and grew up on a plantation in South Carolina. In 1781, at the age of 45, he heard George Lyle present the gospel and he gave his life to Christ uh, along with his wife, Hannah. The Lyle family, the Bryan family, and a few others relocated to Savannah, Georgia, and they formed the nucleus of what would become known as First African Baptist Church. Just a year after the small congregation formed, George Lyle left for Jamaica in order to avoid being re-enslaved and also to minister among slave populations there with the gospel. Andrew, a Christian for only about a year and still a slave, became the new pastor and leader of the small congregation. Along with preaching, any chance he could, he also evangelized slaves on neighboring plantations and was permitted by his owner to erect a small wooden building in which to hold church services. The Lord blessed Andrew's simple ministry and his congregation exploded in size. By 1788, the six-year-old church had roughly 575 members. As a result of the rapid growth of his church, Andrew faced serious persecution by nearby slave owners. The fear was that Andrew was preparing the slaves to revolt. So at different times, slaves were forbidden to attend Andrew's services, and those who did were whipped, beaten, and imprisoned. Andrew himself was also whipped and imprisoned for preaching the gospel to slaves. His owner, who supported his ministry, was able to get Andrew released. A story soon began to spread that while Andrew was being beaten and also during his imprisonment, that he prayed loudly for the men who were abusing him. And this won the respect of many people in the area, both black and white, and it resulted in the conversion of many more people. Andrew's owner died in 1790 and left Andrew a significant inheritance of silver. Andrew was able to purchase his freedom and his wife's freedom with that. And then with some of the remaining money and the help of other sympathetic white Christians, Andrew was able to buy a piece of property on which to permanently place his church. On July 1st, 1790, the property's owner was not listed just as Andrew, but as Free Andrew. First African Baptist Church still stands on this piece of property in Savannah, Georgia. It's the oldest piece of real estate owned continuously by black people in the United States. By 1800, the church had grown to 850 members. In 1802, Andrew deliberately split the congregation and started a second church, a new church in Savannah called the Second African Baptist Church. The following year, 1803, Andrew would once again start a third black Baptist church out of the mother church. As these three churches grew, their congregations also birthed more and more churches around the state. Now, at that time in America's history, Georgia was one of the most stridently pro-slavery states in America. One example of this, Georgia was unable to provide its share of soldiers for the American Revolution because its citizens feared that if they left their plantations to fight for American independence, their slaves would escape. Within that satanic system and satanic people who dehumanized and devoured black people, God put a church 
And God placed a faithful pastor, a pastor with scars. Andrew Bryan preached the gospel in the most dreadful and darkest hours of our nation, but the darkness did not overcome it. Andrew died in 1812. Upon his death, he received accolades from black churches and white churches in both the U.S. and England. Within 20 years after his death, the first African Baptist church in Savannah would have a membership of nearly 3,000 people. May God give us more pastors like Andrew Bryan. It's a name to remember. 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. The promise of modern technology is that there's always something better to make or to discover. So, for example, the phone you have right now is a great phone, but there's a better one coming. And your old doorbell isn't good enough unless it's got a camera and an app. And your thermostat isn't a great thermostat unless it's connected to Wi-Fi and does whatever else. And can you even live these days without a refrigerator that has a touchscreen in the door? I mean, what kind of Neanderthal would dare think about that? Now, technology is not bad. We love the advances. We love the way things progress. But what's a Christian to do when the world comes and says, your message about Jesus is old and outdated, and we have a new and better message? The sheer number of those voices can be persuasive. The modern relevance of their arguments is convincing. And it's a situation that followers, followers of Jesus have faced every day for the last 2,000 years. There's nothing new under the sun. God's people have always lived in a sort of spiritual tug of war. Outside voices and influences strive to pull us away from Jesus. But the repeated appeal of the New Testament writers is this, remain. Stay in Christ. Don't be moved. Abide in Him. The Apostle John, his church, faced this very same situation with some devastating results. In our passage today, we're going to hear John speak about a group of people who left the church. And they left the church because they came to believe that Jesus was not an essential part of God's salvation plan. They opposed Jesus. And when they left, that schism, that split in the church did real damage to everyone. So that schism sets the scene for the entire book. John's overarching message in this letter is that his readers would hold firmly to the apostolic message about Jesus. And those who did not have left the church and the faith. And those who remain, they need to be encouraged and protected against what John calls lies. Although this letter is roughly 1,900 years old, it deals with an incredibly modern problem. You face truth claims all the time. So many of those truth claims reject the centrality of Jesus. So how will you recognize them and how will you protect yourself from them? That's the focus of the passage we study this morning. My goal today is to equip you to recognize spiritual lies and also to utilize the various protections that you possess by faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to approach this passage by looking at two large overarching categories. First, we'll discuss the characteristics of spiritual lies. Second, we'll discuss our protections against spiritual lies. Follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. John says, Children... It is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, when they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He Himself made to us, eternal life. I've written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie Just as it has taught you, remain in him. So now, little children, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So we're going to take this in two large parts. First of all, the characteristics of spiritual lies. Second is our protections against spiritual lies. And so let's start by talking about what these falsehoods look like, the characteristics of spiritual lies. John starts by telling us in verse 18 that this is the last hour. What does he mean by that phrase, last hour? Well, this phrase is used by John to signal that we are living in the time before Christ return. And what precisely does he mean? When John says it's the last hour, does that mean where John sits when he writes this down, he's thinking like any minute the sky splits and Christ is coming back. But that didn't happen and here we are 1900 years later and so John was embarrassingly wrong. I I don't think that's the case. I don't think when John says it's the last hour he's talking about chronology as much as he is theology. Here's the question. When did the last hour begin? Well, the last hour started when Christ was crucified, buried, risen again, and ascended into heaven. At his ascension, the last hour begins. We're in this epic of history between his advents. So Christ came, ascended, and he's coming again. And that whole time in between his ascension and his second coming That is our last hour. So John says, this is where we are. We're in the last hour. And he goes on to say, we know it's the last hour because that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. There's our key words. We've got to make good sense of what John means by the phrase Antichrist and also Antichrists. Now, he uses the term Antichrist in two different ways in verse 18. First of all, uh, he tells us about the Antichrist singular, who is coming, that's future tense. And then second, he tells us about the Antichrists plural, who are already here, present tense. Let's look at both of those words. First of all, the word Antichrist in the singular is a reference to the powerful end-time enemy of God. The word Antichrist is only used five times in the New Testament. 
Uh, four of those are in the writings of John and First John, and oh, excuse me, all five of those are in First uh, John and Second John. Second John has one reference; the other four are in First John. The word antichrist does not show up anywhere else in that form in the Bible. However, the idea of this great end times enemy of God and His Church that is through, found throughout the Bible. So, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter eight. He's called the little horn. In Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus calls this one a false Christ or a false Messiah. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul calls this one the man of lawlessness. John calls him the Antichrist here. And in the book of Revelation, chapters 12 and 13, John calls him the beast. So the Antichrist or the beast is this political, military, religious tyrant from outside the church who opposes and oppresses God's people. And what does John say about the Antichrist in verse 18? He says, that Antichrist is coming. So this singular, final, horrific destroyer of the church is not yet on the scene, but will be. And then John says, but even now, many Antichrists have come. What does that mean? Well, the word Antichrists in the plural is a reference to teachers in the church who deny Jesus. How do we know that John uses these two terms in different ways? How do we know that when he says antichrists, he doesn't mean it the same way he did before? Well, John defines it for us. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Look also at verse 26. He gives further clarification. I've written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So according to John, the antichrists are people who deny the centrality of Jesus in our salvation. And they are attempting to persuade others to join them in their rejection of Jesus. What is it that these antichrists are teaching what is it that they do not believe about Jesus? Well, they're denying the most basic truths about Jesus given to us by the apostles in the New Testament. So they deny or they are warping the apostolic message about Jesus. They deny his divinity. They deny his incarnation. They might deny the power of his death and resurrection to save. They might desire, or deny the, the necessity of faith in him for salvation. They always make Jesus less than what the Bible makes him. They may deny him in part or in full. They may keep the name and change the description, but they always make him less than what the Bible makes him. So based on what John has given us, let, let's sum up real quick four simple characteristics of these anti-Jesus teachers. What is it that we know about them from John's teaching? First of all, they deny the apostolic message about Jesus. Second, they coerce others to reject Jesus, right? They're seeking to deceive you, is what John says. They are threats from within the church. Not exclusively so, but in this instance they are, and in many instances they are. They are people who come under a banner of Christianity, but they are people who deny Christ. And then fourth, they masquerade as people with the truth. We've already seen that in 1 John, right? Multiple times John has talked about those who claim to know 
the Father, but they don't know the Son. There's a problem there. These people masquerade as people with truth. Now, a favorite pastime of many Christians is playing the game, guess the Antichrist, right? You got Yahtzee, and you got Skip Bo, and you got guess the Antichrist, Christian favorites. Uh, someone's always claiming to have knowledge of who the identity of the Antichrist is. The most popular targets are always whoever your political rival is. Uh, presidents are popular targets. People love for popes to be antichrists. Um, military enemies of the United States are popular choices for the antichrist. Uh, but let me ask you, according to what John has given us this morning, who are the antichrists who are already here, who are within the church? who deny Jesus and seek to deceive people. Who are they? They are pastors. They do not belong to one specific denomination or type of church. They are not necessarily pastors who are just completely morally corrupt. They are not necessarily pastors who are materialistic or who teach prosperity gospel. They're not necessarily those specific types. Uh, they come in all different shapes and sizes. They are likely pastors who care about their people, who are very relational, but who by their preaching diminish the person of Jesus. So let me help you think through and identify some various categories of these types of anti-Jesus teachers and their teachings. All right, I'll give you four examples. The first is what I would call liberal pastors, liberal Christianity, progressive Christianity. These pastors are motivated by love. They love their people. Their hearts are outsized in love for people. They are empathetic to the marginalized, to people who are voiceless, to people who are hurting and broken, people who have been crushed by the historic church. They are particularly passionate about, passionate about people who have felt left on the outside of the orthodox with a little o church. They're motivated by love, and in that, they are admirable, and they look a bit like Christ. But they also believe that the Bible's moral and spiritual claims are not absolute, but rather shift over time as culture interprets the Bible. They don't believe that the problem of mankind is sin. Rather, we need only to accept who we are and do the most good we can. Jesus is not a Savior but he's an example to follow. Last week, I stumbled across a website for a progressive Christian church in Tennessee. You go to their website, and love is just plastered all over their media. They love people. But here's what, according to their website, here's what they teach about the Bible. I'll show you an example here. They teach this. The Bible is not the Word of God. The Bible is a product of community. That's strike three right there. That's strike 12. To say the Bible is not the word of God, this apostolic message is not God's word given to us, is deeply problematic. It corrupts the love you profess to have. They say the Bible isn't self-interpreting. It's a library of texts. They say it's not a science book. It's multivocal. Eh, we could kind of be on board with that. 
They would say it's not an answer or a rule book. It's a human response to God. Problems there. They would say it's not inerrant or infallible. It's living and dynamic. Lots of problems there. So liberal Christianity, progressive Christianity, it is a rejection of the apostolic message about Jesus. It is pro-Jesus as an example or Jesus as an affirmer, but it is anti-Jesus as Savior. That's a problem. Another example of Antichrist teachings is what I would call legalistic pastors. These pastors are motivated by holiness. That's a noble pursuit. They may feel that the church is corrupted by culture. The church is losing its distinctness. Um, They may blame pastors who they would accuse of teaching an easy believism. Uh, Pastors who are sin appeasers. Uh, And in fact, what they would say is that people must believe, but also observe a strict list of rules defined by that preacher, the man of God, in order to show that they are truly saved. In this scenario, Jesus is not sufficient to save them apart from the rules and the positions the preacher says they have to hold. It makes Christ less by adding requirements to salvation. The pastor tells people you have to clean yourself up first before you come to Jesus. That is an anti-Jesus message. Two other very broad categories I would share with you. The first would be cults. By definition, cults mutilate the apostolic message about Jesus. Two of the most prominent would be Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is a created being who is actually Michael the archangel. They deny that God is a trinity and that Jesus is God the Son. Mormons teach that Jesus is a created being who is actually the spirit brother of Lucifer. They also deny the Trinity. If you ask a Mormon if they believe Jesus is the Son of God, they will say yes. But they define it so very differently than what the Word of God does. Jesus, according to them, is the Son of God in that he was made by God and is actually one of many spirit children of Father God. So Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, listen, they are some of the kindest, most sincere, most wonderful people you will ever meet. If you are friends with one of these people, you're blessed because they're incredible, really, truly wonderful people. But by denying Jesus, they have left us and do not belong to us. One other category would be other world religions who do not believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus. One example would be Islam. Islam reveres Jesus as an important prophet and teacher. However, in Islam, Islamic teaching, he's not God the Son, nor did he die for our sins. Every now and then I'll hear someone say, well, don't Islam and Christianity worship the same God? Well, Islam doesn't teach that. And Christianity sure doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that. They do not belong to us. Here's where you might push back and say, geez, Cody, firing today. You're telling me that, that everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ is going to hell? Is that what you're saying? You can't get Jesus wrong and get salvation right. This is what John has told us. This, this is the apostolic witness. Those who deny the Son deny the Father. And we don't say that with glee. We don't rejoice that people go to hell. Do you know what we do? We share the gospel. We support missionaries in Egypt. 
We make sure they hear the name of Jesus Christ and the good news that he loves them and he died for them. It fuels the evangelistic mission of the church. We don't sit here and pat ourselves on the back and say, look at us, we're the chosen, we're the elect, we're the ones that God favors to the expense of everyone else. We get out of our pews and we tell people of the love of Jesus Christ for them. That's the mission of the church. It's why we exist. But you cannot get Jesus wrong and salvation right. It is impossible. That's not true only for people outside of this room. It's true for every one of us in here. This is where we have to examine our own souls and make sure we know Christ in truth. Let me share with you an example of what this might look like in a situation from my previous church. Uh, This woman in particular was a single mother of two. It had been a messy divorce, and through the years, her ex-husband was a continual problem. She was very lonely, very tired. And then one day, a co-worker caught her attention. He was kind and attentive and empathetic. He was a hard worker. He was a good man, and he was a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, She emailed me to let me know that she'd be leaving our church to join his, and I asked for a meeting, and she agreed And in that meeting, I began to describe Jehovah's Witnesses' unbiblical teaching regarding Jesus. And at this point, she had already been equipped to argue and deflect. So she defended the church by saying that a lot of what they said made sense to her, and she just wanted to learn more, and she didn't agree with everything, but that they might be right on some things. And I made sure that she understood that that I wasn't concerned that she was leaving our church. She was, in fact, leaving Christ. And I told her that if she wanted a future with that man, he had to come to Christ, but she must not leave Christ. She politely said, thank you, and then left. Uh, Her deception didn't come in the form of a snarling devil on her doorstep. It was her loneliness that drove her from the arms of Christ to the arms of an antichrist. So the voices that woo you to deny Jesus are warm and attractive, and they are horrifically wrong. Christian, do not hand over your heart to lies. John has given us a stern warning against those who attempt to deceive the church away from Jesus, but he doesn't stop with the warning. He goes on to describe some incredible protections that Christians possess. Let's talk about the protections we have from spiritual lies. He describes two The first protection a believer possesses is found in verse 20, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. John says this in verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. Some confusing language, but with a little study we can make sense of it. What is the anointing that John speaks of and who is the Holy One? Well, the word anointing is found in different forms throughout the New Testament. It's used multiple, multiple times in reference to Jesus himself being anointed by God the Father with God the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So the Holy Spirit is the anointing, that medium of anointing. God the Father is the one who does the anointing. Uh, in, In the New Testament, this is the most common way this word is used. God's the one doing the anointing. Holy Spirit is the one who is the anointing. So when John says, you have an anointing, he's saying that Christians possess God the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, this anointing is from the Holy One. Who's the Holy One? Well, this title is used elsewhere to refer to Jesus. 
For example, in John 6, 69, the disciples say to Jesus, we believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So you have this anointing, God the Holy Spirit, from the Holy One, God the Son. In, in plain English, you have God the Holy Spirit sent to you by Jesus Christ. And because of this, you know the truth. Those who are anti-Jesus, they peddle lies. But God the Holy Spirit in you has taught you truth and continues to lead you into the truth. So when you, a Christian, hear a competing truth claim that diminishes the person or the centrality of Jesus given to us by the apostles in the New Testament, you have truth in you to check your spirit and to protect you from giving your heart to those lies. Now, there's some trouble often with verse 27, which says you don't need anyone to teach you. Uh, does that mean that we don't need human teachers? What are we to make of that? Well, the Bible consistently advocates for teaching. And John himself wrote this book in order to teach us. So we can confidently say John's not ruling out a human teacher, but rather what he's getting at, at the time that he wrote the Antichrist, the false teachers, we're insisting that the teaching of the apostles had to be supplemented with an additional higher knowledge, which they claimed to possess. We, we know things that, you, things that John doesn't know. We've got insight given to us secretly in special ways by God himself that John has not received. In, in claiming that, they're making fraudulent claims. John says, all that you need to know about salvation God, the Holy Spirit in you, helps you, teaches you, and holds you secure in that teaching. The teaching of the Holy Spirit, we might call it illumination. It does not reveal new truth. Rather, it enables us to embrace God's truth that has already been revealed in the writings of the Bible. So all things necessary for our salvation are ours. We don't need anything more. The Holy Spirit is your guide, not any other spirit from this world. So you have a protection in God the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. You have a second protection, and that protection is your dwelling in the Word of God. So look at verse 24. John writes, what you've heard from the beginning is to remain in you. So John tells us that if the word about Jesus remains in us, then we will remain in the Son and in the Father. We won't leave. We won't go out from this truth. We'll abide in it. We will remain in it. That word from the beginning is the apostolic message about Jesus. John has used that phrase earlier in this same document. So knowing that message and living that message is profound protection against the lies of false teachers. If you want to become an expert on those who are opposed to Jesus, you don't have to study all of them, but you must study Jesus Christ. If you know the real thing, you can identify a counterfeit easily. And so you have to remain in, abide in, dwell in, live in the Word of God. Christian, get your Bible in you for the protection of your soul. This is God's given protection to you. How do you get the Bible in you? You read it. If you're not a reader, you listen to it. You, you memorize it. You meditate on it. You think on it. Can I tell you another way you get the Bible in you? You belong to a gospel preaching church. So that when you gather with your brothers and sisters in the faith, you know what I'm getting 
is not a pastor's opinions on matters, but I'm getting the Word of God delivered to my soul. So vital that we belong to a gospel-preaching church. you got to get the Word of God in you, and then you remain in it, you continue to abide in it by living the Word. So you're so enamored by Jesus that you strive to think and speak and act in ways that reflect your union with Him. You get to live out His massive love for the lost and the hurting and the broken and the marginalized. And you get to strive in a holiness to live apart from the world yet in the world, to influence people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do all those things by remaining in the Word of God. So although many antichrists have come, friend, you don't need to be afraid. You're protected by the Holy Spirit in you and the Word of God in which you remain. So John has warned us against teachers and teachings of those who oppose Jesus. Those who deny the Son have also denied the Father. But John has also shown us the protection that we have against these lies. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us and our dwelling in the Word of God. Therefore, we can say we remain in the Son and in the Father So, Christian, are you entertaining any anti-Jesus messages in your life? Are you being courted by those outside of the Word of God who are drawing you away from Christ? It would be subtle. It would be attractive. One of the greatest ones right now I see all over the place increasing in popularity are New Age practices that well-meaning Christians would just add to their worship of Christ to get their energies right, to align their chakras, to do whatever. And these things are not of Christ. So evaluate your life. Are you entertaining these anti-Jesus messages? Are you abiding in the Word in order to fortify yourself Or is your spiritual apathy leaving you vulnerable to an antichrist message? Herman Bavnik was a Dutch churchman and a theologian in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was also an insightful teacher concerning the person and work of Christ. Concerning the centrality of Christ to the Christian gospel, he said this. I want to show you his quote. He said, Christ is Christianity itself. He stands not outside of it, but in its center. Without his name, person, and work, there is no Christianity left. In a word, Christ does not point out the way to salvation. He is the way itself. This is the message that's from the beginning. This is what the Word says. This is what the apostles taught. This is what the Spirit affirms. This is what we believe. This is where we must remain. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got to know this. That if you don't get Jesus right, you don't get salvation right. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is God who became man, fully God and fully man at the same time. And he died in your place for your sin. And he rose from the dead three days later. He's the only one whose death could possibly free you from the penalty of your sin. He loves you and he did what was necessary to rescue you. And if you'll turn from your anti-Jesus life. And if you will embrace him as your savior, he will forgive you and give you eternal life. You'll be anointed. God the Holy Spirit indwelt 
in you. You will live in his word. Your life will never be the same. You will have the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit, and they will have you for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father God, we've taken in a lot this morning, but I'm grateful for the clarity of your word. Those who deny the Son deny the Father. Those who have the Son have the Father. And so I pray for my friends in here, those brothers and sisters who may be entertaining uh, anti-Jesus messages and lifestyles. Uh, Lord, would you lead them out of that lie and into truth. And God, protect them by what they know to be true of salvation through the indwelling Holy Spirit, by what they know to be true of salvation from their time in your word. I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. This is a hard thing uh, to say that Jesus is the way. It runs counter to everything this world teaches. And yet, this is the truth that you have revealed, you've given us. So God, I pray this morning for that friend in here that they would believe on Jesus Christ. They would give their life to him and they would know salvation and eternal life. Lord, do a new work today. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who holds us. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Let's respond by singing praise to the only Christ.